This morning we are going to be back in Isaiah chapter 40. We have looked at the first part of this passage during the season of Advent. It's really a classic Advent text about God bringing comfort to His people and preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. Uh, this morning we're going to really focus on the end of this chapter uh, in Isaiah 40, which I think fits really well with Christmas. And then in a couple weeks when I preach again, uh, we will look at the big middle section of this passage, uh, which is really an amazing uh, section in itself. And I want to read for us the end of this. Uh, this is Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 27 and going through verse 31. Here again, the word of the Lord. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, He increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Kinsman Redeemer. Amen. This last section of Isaiah 40, beginning in verse 27, restates the problem. The problem here is Israel's Exile. Isaiah, throughout his prophecy, is looking into the future. He's telling the story of Israel's future. Usually we tell stories about the past. He's telling a story of things to come. And he says, really in the first 39 chapters of his prophecy, that Israel is going to be sent into exile according to the terms of the covenant because Israel has gone after other gods, because Israel has been unfaithful. Israel must be judged. And the form that judgment will take is exile as the people are taken from their homeland, the promised land, as their cities and the temple are destroyed and they're scattered amongst the pagan peoples. But now beginning in Isaiah 40, Isaiah begins to look even further into the future to the return from exile to a new exodus where God's people will be regathered into one people, into one family, and God will once again dwell in their midst. And so Isaiah begins this chapter by speaking a word of comfort. He speaks a word of hope to them that the end of exile will come. There will be a new exodus and God's people will be restored. So Isaiah has been making his case why God is both willing and able to do all of these things. But there are still doubts. And you see those doubts expressed on the part of Israel in verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just my justice passes by God. In other words, Israel's crying out and saying, God doesn't see. God doesn't hear. God doesn't care. God has forgotten about us. He has abandoned our cause. We thought we had a just claim on God because of His Word. But God has not come to us to rescue us. We've hit rock bottom and God isn't doing anything. God has spoken this word to us, but now God is silent. God promised to act, but nothing is happening. 
Now, have you ever felt that way in your life? That Israel's national experience in some way is your personal experience? I'm sure that there are parallels for most, if not all of us. There are times when we are just like Israel here, crying out in need of assurance, wondering, does God really love me? Does God really care for me? Are God's promises really going to come true for me? Or has God forgotten all about me? Maybe you're wondering. Maybe uh, you're thinking much like the Israelites seem to have been thinking at this point. God is so big and I am so small. Why would God care about me anyway? Why would God remember me? Poor little insignificant me. I'm so insignificant. How could God care? That seems to be the way Israel is thinking. How does Isaiah go on to address those doubts? Well, let me put it to you this way. You know, this is a time of year when many of us uh, make New Year's resolutions, and that can be a wonderful thing to do. When you make a New Year's resolution, you are making a commitment, a commitment to live and act a certain way in the future. What Isaiah is going to show here is that God has made resolutions. Not New Year's resolutions, but we could say eternal resolutions and His eternal counsel. God's resolutions are called covenants. And those covenants are His promises or His guarantees or His commitments or His resolutions to act a certain way in the future on behalf of His people. Now, You may or may not keep your resolutions. I don't want to sound pessimistic, but you probably won't, okay? Most likely. But God always keeps His resolutions. God always keeps His covenants. Oh, sure, there are times where we feel like Israel felt in this passage. We feel like God has forgotten us, like God has forgotten His covenant, like God has broken His resolution because we don't see His promises coming true in our lives or in the world around us. And so we look at our lives and we try to square that with the promises of God given in His Word and we can't do it. Or we look at the world around us and we wonder how this fits with what God says in His Word. And so, like Israel, we can start to doubt. We can start to wonder, has God forgotten us? Is our way hidden from God? Will God come through? Will God keep His Word? Or has God forgotten us? You know, sometimes it seems that God likes to give us a real cliffhanger. He lets things go just as long as we can stand it. He he lets us stay in a place of pain or trial before finally acting. But God always comes through. That's what Isaiah is going to show us here. God never runs out of aces. God's always got one more card to play. God is never defeated. He always comes through in the end. And that's what Isaiah demonstrates here. Look at how Isaiah answers this this plea, this question, uh, this doubting on the part of Israel. And really, you can see this as the, 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 the resounding crescendo of comfort that really climaxes this whole passage, that really brings it all to a culmination. Everything in this chapter about comfort has been building to this. Isaiah responds back to their questions with questions of his own. They've said, has God forgotten about us? Isaiah says, do you not know? Have you not heard? Now these are not just rhetorical questions. This is Isaiah's way of pointing Israel back to God's Word for assurance. 
Isaiah's already described God's Word earlier in the chapter. Isaiah has said, the flower fades and the grass withers, but the Word of God is forever. People are fickle. People will fail you. But God's Word is durable and dependable. God's Word endures forever. But there's more than that, really, to these questions. It's not just pointing them back to God's Word. Don't you know from God's Word? And haven't you heard from God's Word? we really got to go all the way back to Isaiah 6 to see what's going on here. Because Isaiah was given a message. Remember, this is in the judgment part of the book back in Isaiah 6. When Isaiah is originally commissioned, God makes him a prophet and then God says to him, yeah, you're going to be my prophet. You're going to have a message to deliver to the people. You'll be my spokesman. But they're not going to listen to you. Your ministry is going to be a failure. Isaiah is told that he will preach and the people will not know and they will not hear His message. Seeing they will not see. And hearing they will not hear. But now all that's going to change. They will know and they will hear the message. They will believe God's Word and cling to God's Word. And as they cling to God's Word in faith, all their doubts will be chased away. Isn't it interesting that the first thing Isaiah does when he encounters their doubts is he pushes them back to God's Word. The Word of God. Isaiah then goes on to reinforce what he's saying here. He gives them further reminders. He says, the Lord is the everlasting God. That is, God has no beginning or end. He is the Creator of heaven and earth. And if He has the power to create the world, surely He can recreate Israel. If He had the power to make the world out of nothing, surely He can remake Israel out of the disastrous exile. Isaiah is saying nothing is too hard for God. If He created the world, surely He can recreate Israel. If He made the world, He can remake Israel. Isaiah says He will not faint or become weary. It's not as if God gets tired or gives out. as if God's got to take a nap and uh, rest up. No, Isaiah says God is a fountain of inexhaustible strength. God is too big to fail, you could say. He's both willing and able to save. He will make good on the covenant promises He has given in His Word. Not only is God all-powerful, God is all-wise. And in His wisdom, He will find a way. Isaiah says there is no searching out His understanding. This is a description of God's infinite wisdom. God needs no counselor. There's no problem too hard for God to solve. There's nothing God can't figure out. God has the wisdom to create the world out of nothing and to bring life out of darkness and to bring life out of death. Surely, God can solve Israel's problems. He has the wisdom needed to solve the problem of Israel's exile. And guess what? God has the wisdom needed to solve all your life's problems too. You may look at your life and think, oh, what a mess. How did things ever turn out this way? How did I get into this fix? Well, there is one who has the wisdom to untangle every knot, to solve every problem. There are no mysteries or riddles for God. No questions God can't answer. Nothing is too hard for God. God is never at His wit's end. He, he never runs out of answers. And so Isaiah shows us, instead of God receiving strength or wisdom from others, God gives strength and wisdom to those who need these gifts. God doesn't receive strength and wisdom. He gives strength and wisdom. Verse 29. He gives might to those who are fainting. He gives strength to the weak. 
I like to connect this to Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul, in the midst of all kinds of trial and struggle in his own life, there are all kinds of, of problems Paul had in his own life and ministry that he couldn't figure out, problems he couldn't solve. And Paul was weak, and he knew he was weak. And there in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. Paul could glory in his weakness because he knew his weaknesses gave God an opportunity to show off. God delights in making the weak strong. You know, interestingly, this is really what the whole, we're still in the Christmas season, so I can, I can put this, put this out to you. This is really what that seasonal wish, Merry Christmas, is all about, is the weak being made strong. We think Merry Christmas, we tend to think that means Happy Christmas, that they're just synonymous. Actually, Merry Christmas, that word Merry, is much richer than that. It has a much richer meaning than that. Think about uh, Robin Hood and his band of merry men. It doesn't just mean they were happy. It means they were strong and mighty in battle. That word Merry, its traditional meaning, means to be joyfully courageous. Think about that hymn we sing, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. That hymn is a plea for God to make the gentleman mighty and happy because of Christ's birth. That hymn tells the story of Christ's birth and says, now go be merry, be joyfully strong, joyfully courageous in the midst of battle. That's what Merry Christmas means. It's a wish that basically says, may Christ make you joyfully strong in times of battle and struggle. That's what it's about. And that's what Isaiah is talking about here. Verse 30, he goes on, he says, even young men faint and grow weary. Young men, young men of course are the strongest and finest of human specimens. But even for young men, their strength runs out and they stumble. That's what I might say. Well, even if the, if the young men don't even have enough strength, then who can have this strength? Who can have the strength we need? Well, verse 31 is going to answer that question for us. But before we answer that question, let me talk a little bit more about the kind of strength that is in view here. When we hear that word strength, we think of physical vigor and health, and certainly that's part of it. That's why he talks about young men. Their strength failing. There's a different kind of strength that God's going to give to his people. Or when we hear that term strength, we might think of intellectual strength, somebody who's really smart or even somebody who's really wise. And certainly those things are included here when it speaks of God giving strength to the weak. But there's more than that going on. We need to remember the context. This passage is given to the Israelites in exile. What kind of strength did Israel need in exile? Physical strength perhaps? Intellectual strength perhaps? That could be a part of it too. But that's not the most important kind of strength Israel needs. What Israel most needs... Is spiritual strength. This is addressing Israel in exile. That means the Israelites are living among the pagans. They are surrounded by idols and by idolatry. And so what kind of strength do they need? They need strength to resist the pressures of idolatry. The temptations that come with living in a pagan land. Strength to stand firm. Strength to be loyal to God even when tested and pressured by all kinds of things that are very alluring, that look so good and so pleasurable. Strength to not buckle under when the time of testing and temptation comes. 
That's the kind of strength ultimately in view here. Strength here means strength to resist paganizing pressures. And when you say you need that kind of strength in your life, whatever else is going on in your life, I know that if you, if you live in America in 2017, you are facing all kinds of paganizing pressures, temptations, and allurements. And you need strength to resist. Think of what Paul says in Romans chapter 12. He writes to the Romans, living obviously in a pagan city, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed, be transformed. That's a message for us today. But to resist conforming and to be transforming, we've got to have strength. Strength that comes from God. Or I like the way Flannery O'Connor Flannery O'Connor put it, the, the, the southern gothic author. I love her short stories, but she wrote a lot of nonfiction too that's really interesting. This was her advice, her counsel. Flannery O'Connor said, push back against the world as hard as it pushes against you. That's the kind of strength we need. The world is pushing in on us. We need to push back just as hard. That's the kind of strength we need. And so what do the truly strong do? What's the secret of our strength? Where do we find this strength to resist the ways of the world? Well, Isaiah says here, wait. He says, wait on the Lord. This is the secret of our strength. This is what makes the strong strong. They wait on the Lord. Which means we find strength in being oriented to the future in a certain kind of way. The strong are oriented to the future in a patient and hopeful way. When Isaiah says wait on the Lord, that's really what he means. Keep trusting the Lord. He's talking here about patient faith. He's talking about patient hope. This waiting in the Lord is resting in the Lord. It's the same kind of thing Jesus is getting at in Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus says, come to me all you who labor and are weary. Okay, This is a passage about weariness. Addressing Israel's weariness. Come to me, Jesus says, all you who labor and are weary, and I will give you rest. Jesus says He will give us rest. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't work for me, wait on me. And I will give you the rest and the strength that you need to do what I'm calling you to do. You'll find it easy to do my will when you wait on me and I continually renew your strength in this way. Augustine said of that passage in Matthew 11, he said, I've read in Plato and Cicero sayings that are wise and beautiful, <clears throat> but I've never read in either of them, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden. Augustine says, you won't find anything like this anywhere else. Any great teacher or wise man who says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you strength. I'll give you the grace that you need. These words in Matthew 11 really echo Isaiah 40 and they are sweet words of comfort for God's people. See, what is Isaiah really doing here in Isaiah 40? He's showing us we can be oriented to the future in one of two ways. This is a great time to talk about the future, right? The start of a new year, the beginning of a new year. Everybody's always looking ahead. What does this new year hold? What are we going to do in this new year? What's going to happen in this new year? But whenever we think about the future or look ahead, we can be oriented to the future in one of two ways. We can either rest or be restless. 
You either rest in Jesus or you're restless. We can either be patient or impatient, meaning we can either wait on the Lord or we can be impatient and refuse to wait on the Lord. We can be oriented to the future by putting our hope in God, or we can become anxious about the future, full of worry about what is to come. See, all anxiety is really about the future. And all anxiety about the future really arises from our refusal to wait on the Lord and hope in Him. And so the way to kill anxiety, the way to kill anxiety is to wait on Him. Waiting on the Lord crushes your worries. Because when you wait on the Lord, you remember God is God and I'm not. There's a great story of uh, Philip Melanchthon who was a 16th century reformer, uh, a close friend and co-worker with Martin Luther. But Philip Melanchthon, uh, one thing about Philip is he was a very anxious man. He tended to be a big worrier. And so at one point he was expressing his worries to Martin Luther. And Luther said back to him, these words, he said, let Philip cease to rule the world. In other words, Philip, stop bearing burdens you can't bear and weren't designed to bear. Instead, wait on the Lord. See, the biggest burden of all is the future. The biggest burden of all is the future because who knows what the future holds. But waiting on the Lord means we let God be God. It means we recognize God is God and we are not. To wait on the Lord means you let God be God and you be you. And you, you recognize that you were not designed to bear these kinds of burdens. And so stop. Let them go. Wait on the Lord. The reason you worry so much is because you think you know better than God. The reason you worry so much is because you think you could do a better job running the universe than God is doing. The reason you worry so much is because you want things your own way. You want to be in control. In control of your life and in control of the future. And that's why you're anxious. So what then is the antidote to anxiety? Isaiah shows us here. See, Israel was anxious about the future. Is the Lord going to go on forgetting us? Has the Lord forgotten all about us? And Isaiah says, no. The antidote to your anxieties about the future is found here. Wait on the Lord. Hope in Him. That's how you kill your worries. You wait on the Lord. That's how you find strength to keep persevering and enduring and obeying the Lord even in the midst of a pagan culture. But see, to wait on God, to wait on God, you've got to admit that God's ways are best. That God's ways are best. Elizabeth Elliot once said, the hardest thing to give is in. The hardest thing to give is in. Waiting means giving in to God. Giving in to His ways and His purposes and His plans. Giving in means admitting that His way, whatever it is, however difficult it is, His way is best. But see, waiting is never easy. In fact, I would say in one sense a refusal to wait is the fundamental problem with the human race. This is our fundamental problem. We do not like to wait. We do not want to wait on God to act. We don't want to wait on God's promises. And so what do we do? As we get anxious, we start to take matters into our own hands. This is really our original sin. 
this refusal to wait on God. This was the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. So quite literally, this is the original sin. Adam and Eve did not wait for God to give them of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil when the time was right, when they were sufficiently mature to handle all that came with it. Instead, they seized it for themselves ahead of time. Their sin was a refusal to wait on the Lord. This was the sin of Abraham with Hagar in Genesis 16. God had promised to Abraham and Sarah that He would give them a child, a son, through whom the promised Messiah would come. But they were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and getting older and older and older. And finally, in their old age, they got tired of waiting for God to give the promised son. And so Abraham took matters into his own hands with Hagar. And we know how that works. This was the sin of the Israelites when they asked for a king prematurely. Instead of waiting for God to give them a king after His own heart when the time was right, the Israelites demanded a king like the other nations. And so in 1 Samuel 8, they get Saul. And that too becomes a disaster. This is the sin repeatedly of Peter in the Gospels. Peter doesn't want to wait on the Lord. He doesn't want to wait for glory. He doesn't want to wait for God to bestow glory at the end of this pathway of suffering. He wants the glory and he wants it now. And that's why Peter is constantly messing things up in the Gospels. Refusing to wait for the Lord is always the sin behind the sin. Why do people fall into sexual sin before they marry? Why do people pile up huge consumer debts on luxuries they can't afford? It's because people don't like to wait. This is our sin, a refusal to wait on the Lord. In our culture, we see waiting time as wasted time. We want what we want and we want it now. And we act like it's our right to have it now. We've been always looking for you know, what people today call life hacks. You know, little shortcuts that will make our lives better or make our lives easier. In our culture, we tend to take a sort of self-help approach to life where we want to be in control, we want to do it our way, we want personal comfort and affluence over everything else. And so we rearrange our lives and reorder everything in our lives with these goals in mind. But what Isaiah is calling us to here is the exact opposite of that. It's not taking matters into your own hands or trying to control your life and force the issue. Isaiah says to wait. And here, waiting on the Lord means stop trying to be in control. Stop looking for shortcuts to the glory God has promised you. Instead, day by day, practice self-abandoning reliance upon God. Quit depending on yourself and cast yourself completely upon the mercy of God. Throw yourself on God's mercy. Give up on yourself and wait on God. Waiting means you recognize God calls us to a long obedience in the same direction. Again, that's what it means to wait. It means waiting patiently and faithfully and obediently. Waiting means you're willing to see the Christian life as a kind of journey with the real destination on the other side of this thing we call death. It means the real destination is not going to come until the final resurrection at the last day. And so you understand that your life between now and the final resurrection is a kind of pilgrimage. And you're on a journey with all kinds of 
twists and turns and obstacles in your way, but you keep pressing on down that path because you know where it leads. Waiting on the Lord means you recognize it's not going to be your best life now. As one best-selling author titled his book, Your Best Life Now. Rather, it means you know your best life comes later. But it is a life worth waiting for. The life to come is worth waiting for. It's a future worth waiting for. And so wait, Isaiah says, wait on the Lord. A little bit later in Isaiah 44, Isaiah is going to say, idolaters grow weary. That's what idols do. They run you down and ultimately crush you and destroy you. But not so with the Lord. Isaiah 40 says those who wait on the Lord will grow in strength. You serve idols, you're going to grow weary. You serve the Lord, you're going to grow in strength. Indeed, one more way of looking at this, go back to verse 27 when Isaiah addresses the people. Notice that he addresses the whole nation as Jacob. He addresses them as Jacob. Now why would he do that? Well, I think perhaps in this context it's because if you go back to the book of Genesis, you find Jacob as a model of exactly the kind of thing Isaiah is talking about here. Jacob himself is the model of patient waiting. Jacob spent a huge chunks of his life waiting, waiting on the Lord. He spent years in exile in Mesopotamia away from the land of promise, just like the Israelites would have to spend years away from the land of promise. Jacob spent years waiting and working for the wife of his dream. He spent years waiting and wrestling with and struggling with men who mistreated him and did did him wrong, including his father Isaac, his brother Esau, his uncle Laban. And yet through it all, we find in Genesis 32, he is a model of patient waiting. And so Isaiah here, this is brilliant, I think. Isaiah, by calling the whole nation Jacob, Isaiah is calling them back to their roots. He is reminding them that they are sons of Jacob. And they should model themselves after their patriarch and wait as he waited. In faithfulness and in obedience. And so what happens when we wait? Well, we come to really the the climactic conclusion of it all in verse 31. What happens when we wait on the Lord? We soar on eagles' wings. We run and don't become weary. We walk and do not faint. Take that threefold description in reverse order. He says if we wait on the Lord, we will walk and not faint. Think how many times in Scripture our way of life is called a walk. Again and again, Scripture does this. It calls the Christian life a walk. Ephesians 4 says walk worthy of the calling you've received in the Gospel. Walk worthy. Live according to the calling you've received in the Gospel. Or Micah 6 puts it this way, the Lord has told us what is good and what He requires of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. As we walk through life, each day taking steps, we're to do so in humility. Walking in this way, it means walking with a grace-empowered strength. It means walking in the way mapped out by God. Walking in the Spirit is how the Apostle Paul describes it. And of course, this means we walk by faith. What about running and not becoming weary? The Christian life is a walk. The Christian life is also a run. The Christian life is a race course. Hebrews 12 shows us this. Let us run the race set before us with endurance 
looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's how you run to win. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, too. He says, run the race in such a way as you will win the prize. Run to win. Make it to the finish line. And you do that by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. When we run with God in this way, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we find our strength continually renewed. And then finally we come to what is the most interesting description. We will soar on eagles' wings. Those who wait on the Lord will fly. Now isn't this beautiful? There's a lot about God in in God's Word. There's a lot in Scripture about God's people and eagles' wings. And I think that's all packed into what uh, Isaiah is saying here. Think about this. When God describes the Exodus in the book of Exodus, if you go back to Exodus chapter 19, okay, so think about what's happened here. God has plagued Egypt. He's brought His people out through the Red Sea on dry ground. So they've moved from slavery to freedom. How does God describe it in Exodus 19? This is what He says to Israel. He says, You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings to bring you to Myself. Now, if Isaiah 40-66 to is all about this new exodus, then it, it makes total sense why Isaiah would go back to the first exodus to show us the model or the pattern. What happened in the book of Exodus? God gave His people wings, so to speak, so they could fly out of Egypt and out of slavery and so they could soar to freedom. So they could soar from Egypt into the promised land. And the whole of Isaiah 40-66 to is all about a new exodus. And so it makes sense that this chapter would end this way, with God's people learning to fly like eagles. It means we will be the people of the new exodus. But I think an even more interesting connection can be made here with Revelation chapter 12, which Dave read for us this morning. Revelation tells the Christmas story, the same story as the Gospels, but it tells us that story from a different perspective. It gives us really more of a behind-the-scenes view of what's happening when Jesus comes into the world. I've preached Revelation 12 before. I'm not going to try to cover all the details there, but I just want to give you a few features here as we wrap this up. What do you have in Revelation 12? You have a woman who obviously represents all the faithful mothers in Israel in the Old Covenant culminating with Mary. So God had promised in Genesis 3.15 a seed of the woman who would come and be victorious. this, This woman represents all of those faithful mothers who raised up seed in Israel. In Revelation 12, this woman cries out in birth pains and gives birth to a son who is obviously Jesus. But then you have a great red dragon, obviously a satanic figure. And this satanic dragon attacks the woman and her seed. Indeed, he wants to devour the son. And again, if we ask, what does this point to? What does this refer to? Historically, it points us back to all those satanic attacks on sons in Israel. Like Pharaoh. When Pharaoh tried to kill all the Jewish baby boys in Egypt, that was the dragon, Satan, attacking the seed of the woman. But of course, it ultimately comes to fulfillment in the story Matthew tells us in chapter 2 of his Gospel when Herod satanically attacks the Messiah, the Christ child that has been born. He seeks to to wipe out the Messiah by having all the baby boys in Bethlehem killed. 
That's the dragon's attack on the seed. It's the slaughter of the innocents. One pastor has said that perhaps instead of singing Silent Night, Holy Night at Christmas, we should sing Silent Night, Violent Night. Let's not leave out this part of the story. The Christ child was indeed attacked by Satan in murderous rage from shortly after his birth. Indeed, whenever I see a nativity set, I always wonder why I don't see any of Herod's soldiers coming right alongside the wise men. Because they made a visit to Bethlehem as well. The wise men brought gifts to the Christ child. Herod's soldiers came after him with a sword. Or whenever I see a nativity set, I always wonder, you know, why isn't there a, a red dragon lurking in there with the other animals in the stable? Because Satan was there. He was seeking to attack the sea. But what does Revelation 12 go on to show us? It shows us the male child surviving this attack. Indeed, this male child is destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron in fulfillment of Psalm 2. And so we find Christmas celebrates not just the birth of the God-man into the world, but a divine invasion as God enters the battlefield to retake what is His, to reclaim His creation. Revelation 12 describes a battle, a war that rages between the serpent and his seed and the woman and her seed. And finally, the dragon is cast down in verse 9 and salvation comes to God's people because their accuser, Satan, is defeated. And we're told they conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. But the dragon's not done yet. Because the dragon could not devour the sun, the dragon intensifies his attack on the woman. Obviously now representing the church. The church is described in the rest of the New Testament as both bride and mother. The bride of Christ in Ephesians 5, the mother of all believers in Galatians 4. The church is the woman here. But verse 14 of Revelation 12 says the woman is given the wings of a great eagle, so she might escape the serpent even as he continues his warfare against those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. What does this mean? What does John's vision of the woman who is given the wings of a great eagle so she can fly to safety, what does it mean? Well, it doesn't mean the woman, the church, escapes all suffering and persecution. It's not as if these wings God gives us means that we can fly up above the, 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 the turbulent jet stream of the world and find perfect peace and tranquility even now. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that the dragon cannot ultimately destroy the church. The dragon has been defeated. The warrior's son has come and has slain the dragon and his victory now belongs to us. And so this woman, this faithful bride and mother, the church, she has wings to fly like an eagle because she is free. She has been set free. She has freedom and forgiveness and victory and salvation in Christ. And so she becomes, as Romans 8 puts it, more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. We're more than conquerors, super conquerors, hyper conquerors, mega conquerors. In the end, we soar to triumph. We fly to victory. We don't just walk or run to victory. We fly. We fly like eagles. We fly with eagles' wings. What is Isaiah saying? If you will wait on the Lord, 
And if you will trust His plan and trust that His ways are best, He will teach you to fly like an eagle. If you serve idols, you're going to be grounded. And you're going to grow weary. You're not going to get off the ground. But if you wait on the Lord, you will take flight. And you will find your strength continually renewed. And you will share in the victory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You for giving us Your Son to be our Savior. Help us in Him and through Him to exchange our weakness for Your strength. Help us to walk and run and indeed fly to victory. Thank You for giving us eagle's wings as Your new Exodus people. May we live in the freedom You've given us. May we enjoy the victory Christ has won for us. This we pray in His name. Amen.